Hello, and it's Saturday morning, which means that it's another episode of Weekends here on the Jacobin YouTube channel. I am your host, Nando Vila, and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host, Anna Kasparian. Anna, how are you? I'm good. Been uh, changing up my look over the weekend, so yeah, it's great you to look be back. Great. That's a lie. That's not Anna Kasparian. That's Paul Prescott from the Jacobin Show over on Wednesdays. You know, the weekend crowd, we're, you know, we're, we're, it's a different crowd here on the weekend. It's a, right. it's a little bit looser. You'll see the chat. They get a little bit, you know, people are taking their tops off. It's, it's going, it's going to be crazy. So, um, always good. Are to you have trying to say smart... that weekends is better than Jacobin show? I don't know. No, I, I, not at all. It's just a totally different vibe. I would say the Jacobin show is smarter, more theoretical, you know, you know, we're, here we're I feel just like you haven't like... been in our chat. Our chat box gets wild, you know? It does? What, yeah, people oh, wow. taking off union shirts and all that. It's, it's great. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm very excited to have you, Paul. We have a great show today. We have Greg Grandin as our guest, the legendary Greg Grandin from a little place called Yale University. Um, and uh, we just we have a couple of deep dives. You're going in on the four-day work week, which, you know, at Jacobin, we believe in the six-day work week because, you know, we work on weekends um so that should be interesting it's a subtle message to that's um, right premier boscar um, um about what the labor practices here in jacobin are but uh and i'm going deep on this haiti situation which is just absolutely crazy um I, it's been it's been wild to look into it because um yeah the president was just assassinated in his home by a group of mercenaries and uh, but first, we got to talk about the most in, uh, important socialist issue in the That's world right. today: the Free Britney movement, Britney Spears. That's right. Because honestly, Paul, like I had not been paying much attention to the whole Britney Spears things because I'm, you know, not a huge Britney Spears fan. Uh, not not nothing against her; just she's not the type of music I tend to listen to. But you know, there's been a lot of controversy lately over this idea that she's been placed under uh, something called a conservatorship, which is basically that like her father and a group of people like lawyers and managers control every aspect of her life. Um, and, you know, there was recently a, a court hearing to see if they were going to extend the uh, conservatorship. And they, they did. And that has led many people to question the validity of this, including a friend of the show, Madonna, who right. weighed in. Um, Kale, do we have the graphic of Madonna? She said, what did she say? She said, give this woman her life back on Instagram. She said, slavery was abolished so long ago. Death to the greedy patriarchy that has been doing this to women for centuries. This is a violation of human rights. So, yeah. I mean, what do you, one what, thing what will be interesting. I kind of feel like it maybe is not the best form to compare this to chattel slavery. But it might be a little interesting to see if Madonna gets canceled for that i feel like a canceling might be in order you know should we cancel her yeah at least like a like a yellow card version of canceling for that <laughs> like you can stay in but yeah you got to you got to watch yourself yeah. um but yeah i mean i had never heard of a conservatorship until this case um and you're right you kind of the more you look look at it it's it's pretty crazy and i think i mean on a more serious note, it's kind of weird that our pop stores are our pop stars are like privately owned entities for public consumption. And it really makes you think about like, is it really pop culture if it's all very carefully managed by corporations and it's kind of just exported to us to consume? But, I, you know, how much are we really shaping 
what we're calling pop culture. I don't think it's yeah actually that. No, totally. And one thing that surprised me as I was looking into this is just how successful Britney Spears was and still is. I mean, Kale, if you want to throw up the the graphic of her of her sales over the years, I mean, she dominates <laughs> over the rest of wow. uh, of the pop, of the pop stars. I mean, it's just it's crazy. Like, I, you know, look at look at all the rest of the, these these <laughs> haters. They're they're not even close to the numbers that Britney's throwing up. Um, and when you look at the actual money that's generated, um, it's it's pretty wild. I mean, according to a piece in, in Jacobin by Sean O'Neill, uh, across 13 years of this strict conservatorship, Britney Spears has carried out the full duties of a global pop star, performing live around 500 times. Nearly half of these performances were part of a Las Vegas residency, which took in $137 million. Her perfume line earns a reported $30 million annually, and she has released four studio albums since 2007 and has a net worth of around $70 million. Um, And, you know, again, I I just find it strange that, like, like, let's take it all at face value that she has uh, very serious mental health issues and is not able to, you know, make decisions for herself or, or whatever. Um, if that's the case, then it's, I, I find it weird that she's still out there being, being a pop star, right? That she, that they're like putting her out there, uh, exposing her to the travails of the pop star life, which, you know, to me, I'm not, I'm not a mental health expert, but it strikes me as not the best idea, um, for someone's mental health to be out there, like in doing a Vegas residency and releasing pop albums and going on world tours. Right. And, you know, we, we were kind of talking about this before the show started, but, There are some similarities with like professional athletes where on the one hand, yeah, they're multimillionaires or billionaires. I'm not exactly like shedding the most tears for them, but they are heavily exploited in their own way. And I think, I mean, just think about how weird it would be to be a celebrity on that level. That's got to do insane things to your mental health. And, you know, like in in another setting, like, you know, unions will negotiate contracts that have to deal with that, like making sure you get medical leave if you're in a situation like that. Um, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like maybe she didn't have that option or that wasn't thought of. Yeah. Now let's, um, you know, there, there was a, like I said, there was a court hearing and um, someone leaked the audio of, of the court hearing. And uh, I, I listened to some of it and it, it's pretty jarring to hear her speak about this in her own words. So let's, let's take a look at that. I was on tour in 2018. I was forced to do. My management said, if I don't do this tour, I will have to find an attorney. And by contract, my own management could sue me if I didn't follow through with the tour. He handed me a sheet of paper as I got off the stage in Vegas and said I had to sign it. It was very threatening and scary. And with the conservatorship, I couldn't even get my own attorney. So out of fear, I went ahead and I did the tour. When I came off that tour, a new show in Las Vegas was supposed to take place. I started rehearsing early, but it was hard because I'd been doing Vegas for four years and I needed a break in between. But no, I was told this is the timeline and this is how it's going to go. I rehearsed four to four days a week, um, half of the time in the studio and half of the other time in a Westlake studio. I was basically directing most of the show with my whereabouts where I preferred to rehearse and actually did most of the choreography, meaning I taught my dancers my new choreography myself. I take everything I do very seriously. There's tons of video with me at rehearsals. I wasn't good. I was great. I led a room of 16 new dancers in rehearsals. It's funny to hear my manager's side of the story, 
They all said I wasn't participating in rehearsals and I never agreed to take my medication, which my medication is only taken in the mornings, never at rehearsal. They don't even see me. So why are they even claiming that? When I said no to one dance move into rehearsals, um, it was as if I planted a huge bomb um, somewhere. And I, I said, no, I don't want to do it this way. After that, my management and my dancers and my assistant of the new people that were supposed to do the new show all went into a room, shut the door, and didn't come out for at least 45 minutes. Ma'am, I'm not here to be anyone's slave. I can say no to a dance move. I was told by my, at the time, therapist, Dr. Benson, who died, that my manager called him in that moment and told him I wasn't cooperating or following the guidelines in rehearsals. And he also said I wasn't taking my medication, which is so dumb because I've had the same lady every morning for the past eight years give me my same medication, and I'm nowhere near these stupid people. It made no sense at all. So... Yeah, I mean, it seems, again, like, I just find, I find the whole thing, the fact that this is a real thing, this idea of a conservatorship, right, um, that can, you know, force someone to perform, uh, you know, in front of millions of people. Uh, and, you know, you look into a crazy shit, like they, they, um, they force her to have an IUD in so she doesn't get pregnant again. Um, it, it, the whole thing is just a little... It's more troubling than I had originally uh, thought when it, when this story was kind of out there and breaking. Yeah, it makes you wonder how common is this? Among, you know, how many other pop stars is this going on, or maybe lower profile stars that are are going through this? But um, yeah, that's wild, and it really just makes you think. Like that that sounds like a totally miserable life. Yeah. So, you know, Jack, and now capitalism, we officially you know. endorse the Free Britney movement. Um, That's right. We're a little late, but, you know, better, better late than never. I'm, I'm being told that the next issue is going to be all, all about uh, nice. the Free Britney movement. The entire print issue is just going to be about Britney. Um, so, yeah, solidarity with Britney Spears. Hashtag Free Britney. Um, we're on board. But you know what else we're on board with, Paul? Reading? Books. That's right. Check them out. Yeah. And namely... Verso Books. You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in July, you'll get these four books One Way Street and Other Writings by Walter Benjamin. Feminist Anti-Fascism, Counterpublics of the Common by Eva Majewska, The Great Adaptation, Climate, Capitalism, and Catastrophe by Roman Roman Feli, The Tragedy of the Worker Towards the Proletaracene by Jamie Allenson, China Mieville, Richard Seymour, and Rosie Warren. So some good books, Stuff. you know, go to, go yeah, to the man. beach, read some Walter Benjamin. That's all, that's all you need. Do you read? Uh, is that what you do when you go to the beach? You read. You read Walter Benjamin. I don't. I'm not much of a beach reader. You know, when I'm at the it's beach, too bright. Yeah, and it's like I'm kind of like hot and like sandy. I don't want my books to get sandy and wet. So, you know, I'm not. I'm not much for that. Yeah. All right, Paul. Well, why don't we get into our decodes? Um, All right. I'll go first um, and deep dive into some of these stories because um, they're yeah. gonna be good. All right. Well, this week saw some stunning news out of Haiti. 
Breaking news from Haiti, where the country's president is dead this morning, assassinated in what's being described as a middle-of-the-night attack. Jovenel Moise had been in office for four years and had been the target of months of protests. Haiti's interim prime minister said Moise's wife was also wounded in the attack. That's right. The president of Haiti was assassinated in his own home. Now, this wasn't your typical presidential assassination, the kind that happens when a president is out in public and some crazed gunman runs up to him and just shoots him. This was a well-executed assault on his house by highly trained mercenaries from the United States and Colombia. The assassins arrived in trucks after midnight, claiming to be agents of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. A U.S. government source told Reuters the DEA had nothing to do with the killing. The gunman, reportedly speaking Spanish and English, descended on President Jovenel Moise's private residence and opened fire. The 53-year-old leader was killed. His wife, the First Lady, also shot. So that certainly raised a few eyebrows. According to the Haitian police, there were two Americans and 26 Colombians involved in the assault. The two Americans and 15 of the Colombians are now in police custody. Three have been killed and eight are still at large. And just this morning, the Associated Press broke the story that the men were hired by an American private mercenary firm based out of Miami. The AP reporters spoke to some of the family members of some of the mercenaries, including the sister of one of the Colombians. He writes, quote, Capador said her brother, who retired from the Colombian army in 2019 with the rank of sergeant, was hired by a private security firm with the understanding that he would be providing protection for powerful individuals in Haiti. Capador said she knew almost nothing about the employer, but shared a picture of her brother in a uniform emblazoned with the logo of CTU Security, a company based in Doral, a Miami suburb popular with Colombian migrants. The wife of Francisco Uribe, who was among those arrested, told Colombia's W Radio that CTU offered to pay the men about $2,700 a month, a paltry sum for a dangerous international mission, but far more than what most of the men, non-commissioned officers and professional soldiers, earned from their pensions. Now, the news that this attack was likely carried out by an American firm is pretty shocking, to say the least. And according to that AP report, one of the Americans who was arrested had previously worked for Sean Penn when he was doing relief work in Haiti after the earthquake. Sean Penn, he's took down El Chapo, he's in everything. So this story just gets weirder and weirder by the day. Now, the question on everybody's mind is, what the fuck, man? Who ordered the hit and why? Usually when there's a terrorist attack, there's a rush to claim credit. I mean, that's like the whole point of a terrorist attack. But with this one, no one has come out and claimed credit. So what happened? Well, in an interview with Jacobin, Kim Ives, the editor of Haiti Liberté, posits a theory. Haiti Liberté's working hypothesis is that the mercenaries more than likely were hired by one or a consortium of the bourgeois families who are opposed, opposed to Moise. Reginald Boulos is one, Dimitri Vorba is another, and there are several others who were unhappy with Moise. If this hypothesis is correct, their fear is of the uprising that is coming out of Haiti's vast shantytowns, where the lumpen proletariat is organizing itself into armed gangs, which have now vowed to carry out a revolution against the the, bourgeoisie and the rotten system, as they call it, in Haiti. Now, Haiti has been undergoing a major political crisis for a few years now, There's been widespread discontent with Moise's rule, and this has led to massive protests and subsequent police repression. Haiti is burning. 
For weeks, thousands of angry protesters have been marching through the streets of the capital, Port-au-Prince, demanding that President Jovenel Moïse step down. Now, amidst the chaos and the government's lack of legitimacy, large swaths of Port-au-Prince have been taken over by armed gangs. And last year, several gangs banded together in a sort of gang alliance called the G9. This is from a report in Haiti Liberté. In June 2020, nine armed groups from Port-au-Prince's poorest neighborhoods formed an alliance called the G9 Family and Allies. Their spokesman, Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier, announced on June 10th that the coalition's launch was the beginning of an armed revolution against Haiti's stinking, rotten, corrupt system, serving the bourgeoisie, which was split in backing two rivals. One faction of the bourgeoisie, he explained, supports the clique surrounding President Jovenel Moïse, and the other faction backs his political opposition, headed by outspoken lawyer André Michel and former Senator Yuri Latortou, both of whom backed the 2004 coup d'état against President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. The G9 is not working for the regime, and the G9 was not created by and is not working for the opposition, Cherizier said. It was created to never again have robberies, rapes, and kidnapping in our neighborhoods, but also for the ghettos to get their due. Schools, clinics, hospitals, services, running water, infrastructure, and all the security which the neighborhoods, which the rich neighborhoods get. Now, this guy, Jimmy Cherizier, aka Jimmy Barbecue, has been the subject of great controversy. Naturellement, nous sommes des gens qui aiment servir les gens. Et naturellement, nous sommes des gens qui toujours été protégés, qui ont fait passer même dans l'enfance. Je vous dis, nous sommes leader qui a un peu d'écoute, un peu de monde qui est en un peu de monde qui est en train Despite the evidence against him, Cherizier promotes himself not as a criminal, but as a man who can bring order to the streets. The power to do that, he says, comes from his position as the man who brought the G9 alliance together. Tout le monde qui est unifié. Now, this guy, Jimmy Cherizier, a.k.a. Jimmy Barbecue, is a former cop who was then kind of hung out to dry by the police force and then became a sort of gang leader. And a lot of the mainstream press, uh, certainly here in the United States and also in Haiti, portray him as a criminal thug. But others see him as a sort of revolutionary hero. Jimmy Cherizier was a, a stellar policeman. Uh, who was basically radicalized by his betrayal by the Haitian police uh, leadership, who uh, hung him out to dry after a um, uh, operation went badly in Grand Ravine in 2017. And he was uh, dealing with some of the leading lights of the opposition, Reginald Boulos, previously mentioned, a guy called Yuri Latortou, who is also an alleged uh, former death squad leader and uh, was called the poster boy for political corruption by the U.S. Embassy itself in the uh, WikiLeaks cables that we uh, released a decade ago. Uh, So he soured on them, too, and he saw that both the uh, government of Jovenel Moise and the opposition, the bourgeois opposition with which uh, Daoud is aligned, uh, were rotten. And he said, we need a revolution because the people need schools they need uh, clinics. They need uh, sanitation. He, he took me around the neighborhoods of Delma 4, Delma 2, Delma 6, where he grew up. He's a street, uh, the son of a poor street vendor. 
And he showed me how people had to uh, do their toilet in a plastic bag and throw it in a canal. And he said, you know, people can't live like this. So he has been calling for a revolution against the system in Haiti and is being radicalized really by the day and by these events. Uh, so uh, the, the portrayal of him in the mainstream press, in the, you know, by the AP, the Washington Post, is he's this uh, gang leader. He's the boogeyman. But the reality is on the ground that this is an uprising, really, of Haiti's lumpen proletariat, which has been uh, crushed uh, over the past <laughs> decades. And uh, Jovenel Moise was no different, and Martali. And uh, the people, uh, it, it, the masses in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, uh, now some three million, four million people have had enough and are rising up. Now, regardless of whether Jimmy Barbecue is more of a Haitian Fred Hampton than a Haitian Al Capone, one can see that the prospect of the poor masses of Haiti's ghettos organizing themselves into an armed gang that the state is incapable of confronting would freak out the local bourgeoisie. So with the growing power of the gangs and the ghettos on the one side and a president who was unwilling or unable to confront that power and who nevertheless was trying to stay in office for a year longer than some thought he should, you could see why the local bourgeoisie might have wanted him gone. Now, the roots of the crisis in Haiti run deep. At its core is the fact that there is a large mass of poor people in the cities who were displaced from the land by neoliberalism. Quote, 50 years ago, Haitian society was a largely rural peasant society, but over the past 35 years since the fall of the dictator Jean-Claude Duvalier, the neoliberal reforms championed by Washington and Haiti, the dumping of excess food, everything from flour to rice to oil, has decimated Haitian agriculture. The result is that millions of peasants have been ruined and have moved to the cities to join the ranks of this huge lumpen proletariat. And obviously, that presence of a large mass of poor people in the cities freaks the rich people out. Now, a lot of this was due to the policies of friend of the show, Bill Clinton. First of all, we have to go back when we look at Bill Clinton and his relationship in Haiti when he was president. One of the worst things that he's done that's still hurting Haiti now, especially in the wake of these disasters that keep happening to Haiti, is this policy where he took the excess rice from Arkansas, where he's from, and dumped it in Haiti and used our tax dollars to subsidize it. Now, this policy of food dumping had disastrous consequences for millions of Haitians. And years later, when Bill Clinton was appointed special envoy to Haiti in the wake of the 2010 earthquake that killed as many as 300,000 people, Bill Clinton said, oopsie daisy. Since 1981, the United States has followed a policy until the last year or so we started rethinking it, that we rich countries that produce a lot of food should sell it to poor countries and relieve them of the burden of producing their own food. So thank goodness they can leap directly into the industrial era. It has not worked. It's maybe been good for some of my farmers in Arkansas, but it has not worked. It was a mistake. It was a mistake that I was a party to. I am not pointing the finger at anybody. I did that. I have to live every day with the consequences of the lost capacity to produce a rice crop in Haiti to feed those people because of what I did. Nobody else. Oh, if only someone could have predicted that. Now, the Clinton crimes in Haiti do not stop there. In 2011, WikiLeaks published a series of State Department cables that showed how the Hillary Clinton-led State Department intervened to block a minimum wage increase in Haiti. 
Revelations also that the U.S. Embassy and contractors for U.S. clothing giants like Levi Strauss and Haynes signaled displeasure at Haiti's initiative to raise the minimum wage for factory workers. U.S. officials advised the Haitian government that a $5 per day minimum wage, quote, did not take economic reality into account, suggesting $3 per day instead. Thank you to the Clinton family for all that you do. But back to the assassination of Moise. Like I mentioned, the news broke this morning that the mercenary firm that likely carried out the operation was based in Miami. And that is troubling for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that it is legal to simply run a soldier of fortune company in the United States. And think about how crazy that is. This is the natural consequence of a very troubling trend in recent years, namely the privatization of war. In a piece in The Atlantic written by a former mercenary named Sean McFate, he writes, quote, For decades now, the centrality of contracting in American warfare, both on the battlefield and in support of those on the battlefield, has been growing. During World War II, about 10% of America's armed forces were contracted. During the wars in Iraq and, Af and Afghanistan, that proportion leapt to 50%. This big number signals a disturbing trend. The United States has developed a dependency on the private sector to wage war, a strategic vulnerability. Today, America can no longer go to war without the private sector. He continues, contractors also encourage mission creep because contractors don't count as boots on the ground. Congress does not consider them to be troops. And therefore, contractors do not count, again, troop level caps in, uh, against troop level caps in places like Iraq. The U.S. government does not track contractor numbers in war zones. As a result, the government can put more people on the ground than it reports to the American people, encouraging mission creep and rendering contractors virtually invisible. Think about that when we think of, you know, for example, Biden pulling out all the troops from Afghanistan. He's going to pull out, like, the troops, but they're going to leave behind a bunch of these private mercenaries who are not counted and the government does not know how many there are, or at least they don't tell us. And the numbers in terms of dollars are absolutely mind-boggling. Quote, contracting is big business too. In the 2014 fiscal year, the Pentagon obligated $285 billion to federal contracts, more money than all other government agencies received combined. That's equal to 8% of federal spending and three and a half times Britain's entire defense budget. About 45% of those contracts were for services, including private military contractors. So, so much of war making these days is done by these private mercenaries who operate totally outside of any public accountability. Now, according to a report by the National Defense University Press, private forces have has become a big business and global in scope. No one truly knows how many billions of dollars slosh around this illicit market. All we know is that business is booming. Recent years have seen major mercenary activity in Yemen, Nigeria, Ukraine, Syria, and Iraq. Many of these for-profit warriors outclass local militaries, and a few can even stand up to America's most elite forces, as the battle in Syria shows. The Middle East is awash in mercenaries. Kurdistan is a haven for soldiers of fortune looking for work with the Kurdish militia, oil companies defending their oil fields, or those who want terrorists dead. Some are just adventure seekers, while others are American veterans who found civilian life meaningless. The capital of Kurdistan, Erbil, has become an unofficial marketplace of mercenary services, reminiscent of the Tatooine bar in the movie Star Wars, full of smugglers and guns for hire. So if you're some country's rich capitalist and you want to get rid of the president or, say, a trade union leader, you can simply go to Kurdistan or Miami and hire a group of highly trained psychos to carry out the violence. It's, for lack of a better term, pretty fucked up. 
Now, it's only been a few days since President Moise was murdered, and the details are still emerging. Hopefully, we will learn more about who was actually responsible for it, and right now, we can only speculate. The question is, what happens next in Haiti? The country has plunged into chaos in the wake of the assassination, and the interim government has requested the U.S. send troops to help with the security, which is pretty remarkable given that the last time Haiti asked for U.S. troop support was after their president was killed in 1915. Woodrow Wilson sent U.S. troops to Haiti to quell the unrest and proceeded to stay there for the next two decades. And that's going to be the question now. If the local bourgeoisie is unable to take the unrest, uh, tame the unrest on the streets and confront the growing power of the G9 and Jimmy Barbecue, will they ask for foreign intervention? We'll have to wait and see. That's crazy. This, the whole thing is just wild. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see where this ends up because... I could see maybe some leftists thinking about it in a romantic way, you know, like these these gangs of working class people come together. But you could also see a situation where that ends up terribly or even some of these mercenary mm-hmm. groups get in on some of that action. So, you know, um, yeah. and and this also just, I think, speaks to destabilization, like even if the United States was not directly involved in this incident, like this is the product of all those years of intervention and destabilization and uh, I mean, a lot of people talk about this. I think most of our listeners will know. But with Haiti, this goes all the way back to the Haitian slave revolution, where they were still forced yeah. to pay debt to France for doing the unthinkable of not being slaves anymore. Um, and, and everything has kind of just flowed from that. Um, but yeah, yeah, then it's in this situation where, I mean, what's going to happen if we put troops on the ground there? Like, is that really going to end well? Do we really think that's where we want to go? Um, but, but they create these situations where it's like you, we create the problem and then come in as the, the supposed solution to the problem. Yeah. I mean, and I think about Haiti a lot because I mean, I'm from Miami where this private contracting firm was based and, uh, you know, in Miami, the big, the big, you know, topic du jour is always Cuba, but there's a large Haitian population in Miami as well. Uh, you know, Haitian refugees fleeing, you know, this just the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, you know, the poverty in Cuba and, you know, like the awful system in Cuba and that that's because of socialism or whatever. Um, but like Haiti is a capitalist state, right. You know, with very close, you know, very close ties to the United States, like all that shit. And it's, you know, far poorer and, and, and worse off than, than a place like uh, Cuba. And what I find interesting about this this latest thing is the presence of these Colombian mercenaries, because Colombia is another state that is very close to the United States. It's incredibly, uh, you know, incredibly tight ties between the national security state in the United States and Colombia's national security state, you know, Plan Colombia and all that stuff um, in, in the fight of the, of, uh, in the drug war. And it's created like this, this essentially class of Colombian warriors right. who are all over the world fighting wars not just it, not just with this latest thing in Haiti but in Yemen and in Nigeria and in like these and is this is all fueled by the billions of dollars that the United States pumps into uh Colombia to you know train these people and and to build up their uh national security state so it's all it's all kind of linked right. all of this all of this is is all tied and and, you know, I, 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 you know, like reading about this guy, um, Jimmy Barbecue, obviously, like, you know, he is, uh, you know, he, he is saying a bunch of like left wing things. And, and that's 
that's great. But he's also like, you know, you like you said, you can imagine this right. becoming or very, he, he becoming very, the very next quickly. sort of like warlord mercenary leader, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. And it makes me think about, I mean, how much easier does this make pulling off coups, you know, because at least before like a government, you know, it wouldn't be the best look for them to do it. They would have to be secret about it. Um, they would have to mobilize their parts of their own state. But I mean, it's so much easier now if you can just rely on a private army for a coup. And really what you said about imagine, yeah, like a union leader, like you just want to get rid of a pesky Coca-Cola union activist in, in Mexico or something um, using private army to do it, which is really scary to think about. Yeah. No, I mean, the, this reminds me of that story, that very funny story that happened last year of the private mercenary Jordan Goudreau, who tried to, you know, who who got a bunch of the Venezuelan bourgeoisie expats in Miami to pay him some money, including Juan Guaido, to to you know, do a contract to, for him to do a coup d'état in Venezuela against Maduro. Right. Obviously, the situation in Venezuela is very different from Haiti. You know, the Venezuelan state, you know, is very powerful right. and was that the embarrassing thing where they just like came off the beach and were like they they like live tweeted the coup right um and and showed up on venezuela with in venezuela with their passports like, um, hi guys we're know, here to do the coup thing <laughs> we're here to we're here for the coup it's like that scene in uh, old school like you know i'm here for the gangbang you know right. yeah, i'm here for the coup um and uh you know it went horribly wrong but like that's what they did they just like these rich guys were just like oh there's now there's just like private armies you can hire for twenty seven hundred dollars a month per guy that's like not that much money for that's, uh, that's better than like san francisco rent totally um so it, it's it's a it's a pretty this whole idea of the of this new mercenary class which again is like you know there's the the old saying like the you know the oldest profession in the world is 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 a prostitute well like the second oldest is is a mercenary uh, a soldier of fortune um right. and uh you know that's just exploded in recent years with the this kind of new type of warfare um that exists where it's all just kind of chaotic skirmishes and not like you know not like world war ii history documentaries where it's like you know the tank units are rolling in and now now it's all right. just kind of these shadowy figures who uh are accountable to no one and not you know they're not uniform they're all wearing whatever it is you know it's just it's it's a pretty grim outlook right yeah and i think like you know the big thing with vietnam was eventually the costs and the body bags were too much and i think that tilted public opinion and the anti-war movement but you know you're not going to have that same dynamic with private security firms yeah no um well, absolutely. Maybe on a lighter note, um, yeah. I'm going to talk about the um, experiment in Iceland with a uh, four-day work week. So, um, you know, there's so many ways employers dominate and exploit our lives as working people. They take the majority of the profits that our work creates. We're dependent on them for benefits like health insurance. If you're in a non-union workplace, or even if you're in a unionized workplace, you know, our employers may bully us and treat us like dirt. But I think one of the most fundamental things employers exploit is our time. And especially in America, we work too damn much. By dominating our time, capitalism dominates and determines our social life, our ability to spend time with loved ones, and our ability to develop all our capacities and talents to the fullest extent. But there are some encouraging signs that at least in some parts of the world, the four-day work week could become reality soon. In Iceland, the uh, Reykjavik City Council one of their major trade union confederations and the national government ran a series of trials as a four-day working week between uh, 2015 and 2019. And this is the largest experiment ever done in shortening working hours without cutting pay. 
and over 2,500 workers in the public sector, and that's over 1% of the country's entire working population, took part in the study. And the results were a resounding success. Workers reported feeling less stressed and burnt out. They had better health. They had more time to spend with their loved ones. Even productivity improved, if that's something that you care about. The Icelandic Association for Sustainability and Democracy released a report outlining the results of the trial. And I want to highlight a lot of the feedback from the worker participants. Let's start with how a shorter work week improved the weekends. I think we've all experienced this where during the week, we're too busy to take care of basic tasks and errands. So over the weekend, instead of relaxing, uh, we're doing more work. Instead of reading our favorite book, playing basketball, watching weekends, we're grocery shopping, we're mowing the lawn, we're cleaning the house and things like that. So the study concluded in interviews, both males and females said that it was easier to do various errands around the home, such as shopping, cleaning and tidying during weekdays rather than during weekends as a result of shorter hours. One participant expressed everything at home we couldn't finish during the weekdays we had to do during the weekends. And as a result, the weekends were of less quality. Many participants indicated that being able to do these tasks on weekdays improved their lives considerably as they can now spend more time with the family and with their partner. A shortened work week also helped balance out the um, often gendered, gendered division of labor in the home, citing stress was commonly reduced in the home after reducing working hours. This seems to be a result of a partner, often male, being able to assist more in the home, making it easier for the other to attend to other duties or take some some time to do something personal, but also because people simply had more hours to devote to the family. Grandparents were happier as well. Um, This is from one grandparent that participated in the study. We have often just gone home, played some games, and just now we were talking about going to a coffee shop together. I wouldn't be able to see my grandchildren if not for the shorter hours. This is wonderful. In short, the results were not ambiguous at all. The four-day work week was a win for workers across the board. Um, The study concluded saying, across both trials, many workers expressed that after starting to work fewer hours, they felt better, more energized, and less stressed, resulting in them having more energy for other activities, such as exercise, friends, and hobbies. This then had a positive effect on their work. But this really should not be surprising at all. We all know how we feel when we get a vacation, when we get some time to step away from work. We know that human beings were not meant to spend over 40 hours a week in a cubicle or a warehouse or in a truck doing the same thing over and over. Some of us who were lucky got a little taste of a shortened workday during COVID. And I was one of them as my school operated on a shortened virtual schedule that ran from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And to be clear, my experience was definitely not universal among most teachers in this country but I immediately felt improvements in my life from this change. I slept two more hours every day. I had time to exercise and eat healthier. I could literally feel the difference in tension in my back and in my neck. I could pursue other interests more like writing for Jackman. Um, And my partner can confirm that our relationship greatly benefited from this. We had more quality time as a couple. Instead of me being tired all the time, I could put more into the relationship. So shortening the workday and the working week should be firmly on the agenda for the left and the labor movement in the United States. So let's talk about how to get there. And this is where we can also learn a lot from what happened in Iceland. This trial wasn't just a random good idea from the government. It was a product of Iceland's robust and powerful trade union movement. So Iceland's union density is 90%. Yes, I said 90%. 
meaning 90% of Iceland's working population are in unions. To put that in perspective, union density in this country is 11%. So unions in Iceland have an incredibly powerful role in civil society. These unions had already been negotiating contracts with reductions in the work week that covered many workers. This, combined with their lobbying efforts, pressured the government to conduct this trial and consider implementing uh, shorter working hours across the board. So generally, the countries where people work less have stronger unions and a social democratic tradition. In the United States, labor will have to play a key role in getting this on the agenda. The only reason the eight-hour workday is considered standard now is because labor unions fought like hell for it in the past. And of course, it wasn't always this way. In the early days of industrial capitalism, it was quite normal for workers, including young children, to be working 12 or even 14 hours a day. It took massive strikes just to get a 10-hour workday. A general strike in Philadelphia in 1835 had kicked off a wave of strikes across the country that made the 10-hour day more standard. And here's a scene from that strike in Philadelphia. Irish workers on the Schuylkill River coal wharves first took the initiative and walked off the job in May of 1835. 300 workers paraded throughout the city, threatening any potential scabs with a sword. As usually happens with mass strikes, things escalated quicker than ever even those participating thought possible. Soon, every union was out in solidarity, including painters, coal heavers, printers, masons, and city employees. Fife and Drum Corps were formed to parade down the streets with banners reading, From 6 to 6, 10 hours work, and 2 hours for meals. That time, 10 hours of work was considered a luxury. And we've already had Richard Wolff on this show to explain this whole history, but May Day, or International Workers' Day, comes from the struggle for 8-hour workday in 1886, In the United States, even now in this country, we celebrate it less than most other countries. The fight over time has always been central in the fight between capital and labor. Employers want every second of our time devoted to them making profits, while we are trying to claw every bit of our time back for ourselves. And the fight over time plays out in different ways. The amount of break time, the number of sick days and vacation days, the amount of paid family leave, These are all things unions fight with the employer over. And this issue will become more central as we deal with the effects of automation and possibly an employment crisis. A rational society would use automation to spread work around more evenly and reduce all of our working hours. The only way to use automation to our benefit will be to shorten the workday for everyone without loss of pay and employ more people in the process. There's many different ways you can describe socialism. But ultimately, what we're talking about is allowing all of us to have more fulfilling and enriching humane lives. The fight for a shorter workday and work week is key to realizing that. And this issue has altered the trajectory of my own life. I'm a public school teacher and my father was a public school teacher. And I know everyone talks about our summer breaks as teachers, but this is just something that should be standard for all workers. My father is from Barbados. And because he was a teacher and had that time off, Every summer since before I can remember, we went and I lived with our family in Barbados for the whole summer until school started back again. Without that opportunity, I would have never built such strong ties with my family and with another culture. It gave me the chance to connect with an important part of my history. Those experiences shaped who I am and made my life so much richer and my perspective so much broader. And it all comes back to this freedom from work. And this is something all workers should have. So Nando, you know, when are we going to write this petition to uh, Jacobin? 
Yeah. Honestly, uh, you know, I'm I'm about to uh, storm the barricades after that segment. You know, uh, this is, uh, you know, I, I I think about like I remember this was like a hugely formative thing in my in my life was when France passed the 35 hour work week uh, law, which was I don't know, I don't even know when it was like it was a while ago. Yeah. Um, and I remember like just talking to people when that when that happened because everyone was like, it became kind of like a meme to make fun of them. It's like, Oh, look at these French. They surrendered in world war two and now they don't want to work. And you know, um, like, like lazy French Pierre so that he can, you know, sit around and eat his brie cheese on a baguette or whatever. Right. Um, good. and I'm like, dude, that sounds fucking great. Like, I don't right. know what you guys are, why you guys are making fun of them. Like we should, like we'd be so lucky to, to be able to work less. Um, and it's it's like you mentioned, like this automation, um, all the all, all the automation we have, like you'd think we could work less um, because machines could do a lot of the work for us. But but it's it's created the exact opposite in which we have to work a lot more. Like right. We work more than we have in in, in decades, um, which just makes no sense. Right. And, you know, and this is something I wish. It was framed better during the last presidential election. And this is not, I'm not just trying to take a cheap shot at Andrew Yang, but where I was frustrated was I was glad he was bringing up automation. I think more people should have. I think even Bernie should have talked about it more. But I think a better solution is saying, let's cut the work day or, or you know, yeah. work week significantly, spread the work around. I think to me, that's a more appealing solution than UBI, which, you know, can be used in different ways by conservatives for for bad ends. Um, but I think that it really is the only way to deal with automation and we automation is coming. I mean, we know it's coming. It's very hard to stop. Um, this is the way to deal with it. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's remarkable what they, what they did in Iceland. Um, you know, and, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, you can think of like so many benefits beyond, you know, the, the, the immediate obvious ones, but just, the idea of a, of a three day weekend, um, you know, I, I've seen studies that show that like the two days, you don't have enough time to disconnect in the two days. Right. Like, by the time you've disconnected, you're already like dreading, you know, you got the Sunday scaries, you know, right. yeah. as they say. Uh, and uh, a three, you know, like so when we have one of those three day weekends, you're like, oh my God, like you can really actually take some time for yourself, like without just having to, you know, you have enough time to unwind and then enough time to like, prep for the you know oncoming dread of 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 the work week uh right so yeah man i mean i i i've always said like uh, it's amazing even just going you know if you've anyone's taken trip to europe i mean i was in berlin a few years ago some bar and it's just amazing how many people i met from different countries in europe and everyone was like oh yeah i'm on my like month vacation or on my two-month holiday that's just normal you know and you know that's how they they get to travel and and do the things they want to do yeah and it's 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 crazy because like you know in america we think of ourselves um individually as consumers um and we don't think of ourselves as you know workers in a collective but you're starting to see like all kinds of funny stories about you know for example like the hamptons now um it's it's so it's so inexpensive to so it's, it's so expensive to live there um that they're having like a huge worker crunch, like all these rich people who live in the Hamptons, like can't find workers to like clean their houses and, 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 right. you know, serve them cocktails at the bar or whatever. Um, 
because like and, and it's like these are the kind of things like these are the kind of contradictions that emerge um with this kind of thing you know uh as as we kind of squeeze more and more people um in, in you know through the system um but like this this automation thing this idea that 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 you know we have all these machines that can do a bunch of stuff yet will work longer like that that contradiction is very right is is like a it's a hard one for people to wrap around uh, wrap their minds around right and i think just one more thing on this what's also interesting because even you know a lot of unionized members i mean one benefit is like you'll get overtime pay if you work overtime and you know in a lot of sectors workers really work a lot of overtime and i think part of that comes back to because our lives are so expensive so it's like okay you might be making 70 80 thousand a year that's pretty good but if you're thinking about two kids to college it's like yeah you probably should get as many overtime hours as you can so i mean that's also a challenge is that even unionized workers still feel that crunch to have to try to get overtime because i think a lot of it comes back to just our total lack of a a social safety net yeah yeah so speaking of that i'm gonna take the rest of the show off so yeah yeah just get take it off (laughs) well no we'll we'll have to we'll have to bring bosker on to face the music uh right and uh you know see we'll give him peace of our mind but uh, I think, Paul, we should bring in our, our guest for the yeah. week. Um, you know, this week we're very excited to have Greg Grandin, who is a professor of history at Yale University and is the author of several books, including The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, and most recently, a new edition of his book, The Empire's Workshop. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me? Uh, we can hear you great. Great. I dig the beard. You got like the Letterman beard. Yeah, right? yeah, I got the John Brown beard. John Brown, the John Brown, Brown beard. Much better, better than, than Letterman. Letterman. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. um, why don't we start off? Can, can you can you just explain what do you mean by uh, the Empire's Workshop? Well, it you know I wrote the book, the original book in two thousand and five, two thousand and four, when I was trying to. It was after the first blast of insanity after 9-11 when, you know, went into Afghanistan and Iraq and then, you know, some neocons were wanting to push further. And I was trying to make sense why all of a sudden all these these old um, Iran-Contra hands and Central American hands uh, suddenly became very prominent in this in this bid to, you know, project U.S. power into the Persian Gulf. You know, Elliot Abrams, we can go through the list, but, and, and a lot of them would connected to Central American tangential ways. The Dick Cheney himself wrote the minority report for Iran-Contra and, uh, you know, where he advocated for a, for a plus ultra definition of the executive power, imperial presidency that at the time seemed marginalized and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, but then by the time you get to 2004 was, was, you know, just part of national policy. So I was looking at, I started looking at Central America specifically and Iran-Contra as the training ground, as the place that basically brought together a generation of, of, of new right, of uh, these new right militarists and, and thinking about this Reagan Central American campaigns as a, um, as a crucible that reconciles and, 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 um, and, uh, contradictory constituencies and coalitions and ideas. So you can bring the secular neocons with the theo, with the religious theocons, with the 
with the old old traditional workhorses of uh, law and order anti-communism with the radicalized vets like Ali North, uh, radicalized to the right after Vietnam, counterinsurgent theorists. Central America kind of brings them together and, and it creates a coalition. It creates it creates the uh, a, a political realignment, an, an aspiring coalition that that gives it, you know, that makes sense of the crisis, that helps make sense of the crisis, and helps overcome contradictions within that coalition. And then the book became a little bit more ambitious to look at how Latin America as a whole serves that function within the United States. So we all know the story about Latin America. We all know. Latin America and, and, and interventionism, something like 42 uh, regime changes between 1989, between 1898 and 1992 alone that Washington presided over, the famous ones, the tragic ones, Allende and Arbenz, you know, the taking of Mexico, so many more that we can't even, that, that most people don't even know about. The, the U.S.'s first coup in Mexico was in the mid-1820s in which uh, an ambassador who was a member of the of the of the uh, uh, Scott Wright Freemasonry uh, uh, set up a bunch of lodges to counter the influence of the of the of the of the York Wright Freemasons that had a and that had a that had a that were much more confrontational to the United States and and basically undermined using a kind of classic civil society strategy of destabilization. So anyway, that's just one example. But the main point was the way Central America serves uh, during moments of crisis, domestic crisis, when uh, one coalition is on its way out because their worldview can no longer help organize the world effectively, can no longer focus U.S. power effectively. And a new ascendant coalition is, uh, is arising. And um, we can go back through the history of the United States, going back to the, the founders and the Jacksonians and the and the Civil War and the progressives and and Central America, Latin America plays a role in each of those coalitions. So that's what I mean by a workshop. It, 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 it's also a workshop where the U.S. works out strategies to to that it then applies elsewhere in the world. So we, so that, so that there's that part of the phrase workshop, but the main part of the book is thinking about how uh, domestic political coalitions use Latin America to, to get a sense of themselves, to be a, a class, not just of themselves, but for themselves. And to maybe go further back in U S history, can you kind of talk about what was unique about the United States in terms of its kind of limitless expansion and how did that, kind of affect the, the rest of the trajectory of U.S. history? Um, well, yeah. I mean, when you just, this was more of a topic of the end of the myth and, and from the frontier to the border wall. But um, when you think about the United States, there's not too many, um, you know, not too many countries has had the, has had the luxury to, to indulge in actual and fantasized expansion as the United States. Um, whether it be across the landed uh, uh, continent and then and then into markets and militarisms and just an ability to constantly organize domestic politics by invoking the promise of limitless growth. You know, in some ways, that's why the United States is the ideal capitalist nation. And in some ways, that's the key to understanding 
why the cult of individual rights is so deep in the United States. Because if capitalism itself is predicated on the need to constantly expand, right, that's, that is in some ways capitalism 101, Cat, you know, there are, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of growth, the dy- dynamics of growth. Um, the, the United States has, has in, 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 as, uh, has materially been the nation that has most closely embodied that ideal. And, um, and, and, and where other countries, and of course other empires expanded, the British Empire expanded across the world. Um, you know, there, there were, there were non-Western empires. But in terms of uh, embracing the idea of growth as a central component of one's political culture and then linking it very clearly to a definition of citizenship and rights that that took individual rights as sacred and sacrosanct and took social rights as perverse and dangerous, um, I think the United States is, is, is unique. Is un- and unique in, 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 in doing that. And, and so then the question of course, is what happens when the United States hits limits, right. And, and, and what happens when the United States hit, hits a wall, so to speak, and, and in terms of, in terms of limits to growth and, and, and how does one adopt uh, to a new political culture and, and navigate that transition in a way that would be humane and not barbaric, I think is like, you know, one of the central questions that I, that, that I tried to look, look at in, in uh, the end of the myth. Um, one of the times where the United States did implement some humane policies was during FDR's New Deal. Um, c- c- can you explain uh, how FDR's good neighbor policy uh, was such a radical break um, and like, why, why did he implement it? Was he pressured or was it something that came just from his own life? And, and, and like, what effect did Latin America have? Like, what role did Latin America play in sure. the New Deal? Those are two good questions. And, and the answer could be a bit long. And I don't want to, I, I don't want to um, go off on a tangent and, and, uh, and lose the threat. Um, uh, to the first question, why did he implement it? I mean, the Great Depression, the Great Depression led to an enormous contraction of, uh, of, of U.S. power in the world, and uh, and there were other other models on the march: you know, fascism and, and Nazism and and uh, and militarism in Europe and Asia. And uh, so Roosevelt was an astute enough politician to know uh, to recognize a crisis and 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 uh, and to and and to use that crisis to imagine. Um, to imagine different alternatives. He was also an extemporaneous politician where if he tried one thing, he tried one thing and it worked and he continued to try another thing and it didn't work and he abandoned it, he moved on, he moved on. But more than anything else, uh, interestingly enough, Roosevelt was a student of Frederick Acton Turner, you know, the, the famous historian who came up with the, with, with the, with the, with the frontier thesis and frontier thesis was both, um, was both an academic paper, you know, that tried to explain the nature of political U.S. political equality through, by linking it to the expansion over land, over what they call free land. But of course, free land was dispossessed land from Native Americans, and this is in many ways the kind of the settler colonial undertones of American uh, of, of of American political culture that's inescapable. But setting that aside, uh, the frontier thesis, you know, posited an argument. But it was also an ideology, and it also helped explain the world. 
And Roosevelt was kind of steeped in that, in, in, in thinking about the world in those terms. And one of the things that he and his brain thrust did, I mean, they, you know, setting aside the policies, we all know the policies won't go into the, into the de- you know, into details of, of, uh, of, of Social Security and, and, and the WPA and the NRA and all of that. But Roosevelt was very good at putting forth, um, was putting forth a, a, a vision of social solidarity and social citizenship that uh, that was a break from past notions of citizenship and individualism that, that I had been that I had been talking about earlier. I mean, basically, they took the word social as an adjective and affixed it on everything: social civilization, social security, social education. You know, um, you know, uh, uh, Roosevelt was very good at giving like at giving a five minute uh, s- summation of the of the frontier thesis. Of saying, you know, for years, you know, the frontier allowed us to pull up stakes and move on when there was a crisis, and we do it over and over again, and and you know, and 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 it led to and it led to the creation of an enormous wealth. But then he would say, "But those days are gone." You know, he has that great he has a great expression, "But those days are gone," and 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 we live in a world that that we we live under a government that used to do. Used to have to do less regulating, now has to do more regulating, um, and and the people around him, Francis Perkins at the Department of Labor, and Rex Tugwell, and Stuart Chase, and Henry Wallace, they were all very good at putting forth this notion of uh, of social citizenship that even that as a way of framing. A, a new conception, a new political culture of, of of government responsibility and relationship between the citizens and and the state. You know, it, it and and it lasted. It lasted for a long time, and to the degree that there's anything good left within the U.S., you know, within it, it, it's the res, res, residue in many ways of of that conception, and and it helps explain why it's so hard for political thinkers to escape the framework of the New Deal. Now, in terms of your second question, what the role of Latin America was to that, Latin America was absolutely key. It was absolutely key in a number of ways. But um, but one of the ways, uh, you know, that there's a whole, whole aspect to this in which Latin America had developed uh, basically the foundations of multilateral and multinational uh, law. A, a, a way of imagining the organization to how to organize the global global system, and and the very first principle was that of that was no intervention and recognizing the absolute sovereignty and the formal equality of every nation, no matter their size and no matter their power. The U.S. had long resisted that. Roosevelt gave in in 1933 and accepted that principle and gave up the right to intervene. This was a political earthquake, and it might have been the most successful foreign policy decision a, a U.S. president has ever made in, in the history of the United States. Because it didn't lead to a hemorrhaging of U.S. power. It led to a consolidation of power, a way for Washington to figure out how to, how to project its, its authority through, a kind of, through, through what became a new multilateral system. And, and, and the U.S. took what, what, it, what, he, what it and Latin Americans had built before and during World War II and put it into place on a global scale. But more importantly, on a materialist foundation, the materialist aspect of it, it allowed the United States, the goodwill generated by the Rooseveltian turnaround, 
allowed his uh, Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, to sign a series of free trade treaties with Latin America that, um, that, that began the transformation, the recovery from the Great Depression. And most importantly, it, la- it allowed for the consolidation of a power block of high-tech, labor-intensive, export-driven economies, um, industries, pharmaceuticals, uh, chemi- uh, chemicals, uh, oil, uh, electronics, that becomes the ballast for the New Deal. They, they, th- these corporations, and you know, the United States never had formally a system of formal corporate capitalism, but it had an informal one. Pan Am was the was the was was the United States's airline, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and and a lot of that was made possible through establishing Latin America and the goodwill in Latin America as a kind of region in which the U.S. could regroup economically, but also where this group. Of, of, of corporations that didn't oppose the New Deal. They, they weren't invested in, they were willing to go along with an expansion of labor, the expansion of labor rights, for instance, whereas the old textile industries and the shoe industries and, and the labor extensive industries became the bedrock of, of opposition to the New Deal. And so the, the, the consolidation of this power block of, of, of of corporations that becomes the foundation of the New Deal coalition provides ballast and stabilizes it and stay up, up, you know, up through the 1970s. That becomes the foundation. And Latin America, and just to answer your question, that starts in Latin America because these corporations, because of the goodwill established because of Roosevelt's turnaround in terms of interventionism and and recognizing sovereignty, um, uh, uh, allowed, allowed uh, a signing of, of by you know of, of, in, of free trade treaties, and and these were free trade treaties that are not like free trade treaties today. Free trade treaties today are just about con- consolidating the monopoly of of of, of private rentiers of the you know the, you know and, and strengthening the corporate power of of, uh, of corporations that extract enormous amount of rent and and bond interest. These were real trade treaties that really did kind of open up. And, um, and so that's, that's the long answer to your question. And in the, in the post-war world, so Latin America did not get a Marshall plan unlike Europe did. So how do you think that impacted its development in the second half of the uh, 20th century? Well, it's funny, it's funny you should ask that because I, an, because I actually have a, a, a fairly strong opinion about that. Latin Americans <laughs> wanted a Marshall plan. I mean, Latin Americans went along with the United States in World War II. I mean, sure. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm speaking on a kind of Olympian level here. There were obviously some some hiccups, you know, Mexico and, and, and Argentina in different ways continued to descend from U.S. Uh, U.S. leadership for different reasons. But for the most part, Latin America rallied around U.S. leadership, the, the, the Rio Pact, which becomes... Latin, the Western Hemisphere's defense, uh, mutual defense, in, uh, 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 mutual defense treaty becomes the model for NATO after World War II. Um, Latin Americans rallied behind the United States leadership, and they fully expected that um, that coming out of World War II, defeat of Nazism and fascism meant the expansion of social democracy, not democracy, not political rights, but political rights and economic rights. 
not democracy, not political democracy, but political democracy and social democracy, because that was the the reigning ethos. The 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 fight was, and you saw in one country after another in in Latin America, especially between forty four and forty six, mass movements that were trying to make good on this promise. Uh, you know tied to union and peasant movements and, and political nationalists in one country after another. You, one could say between 44 and 46, there was a social demo, a transition to social democracy in Latin America. What happens? Latin America around this time wants a Marshall Plan. And it wants a Marshall Plan because it wants to move out of the, the, the being locked in the, in the, in the position of, of being an exporter of raw materials to the United States. And um, and at the at the meeting that creates the Organization of American States, which is held in Bogota in April in 1948, George Marshall himself goes to Latin America. And now this is a moment where you know Raúl Prebes has put uh, Argentine economist who who is who is central in ideas about kind of taking Keynesianism and 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 expanding it to cover cover underdevelopment in the third world. Uh, are putting forth arguments, um, very you know the 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 Singer Prebis thesis, for instance, you know that their argument that is is that if you have one country that is primarily exporting primary raw material and other country is primary uh, importing into that country, you know uh, um, uh, value added goods, you will always have a worse, you will inevitably have a worsening deterioration of trade. You know if it took a hundred bags of coffee for Colombia to buy one Jeep in 1940, it would cost 150 bags of coffee to buy that Jeep four years later, you know, some, you know, very, and they showed up at this conference in Bogota in 1948 and they wanted a Marshall plan. They wanted public credit and capital to, to industrialize. And basically George Marshall said, no, you know, uh, you know, he, he put forward a kind of more of a, a, a traditional theory of modernization in which Latin America would somehow somehow magically industrialize from its from its uh, from producing raw materials just through private credits and loans, and he, and he told them you you're going to have to attract private capital. So here's the problem with that, you know, in Europe because Europe had access to public capital, they didn't have to suppress then anti-communist or non-communist reformers because because um they could still have access to, to capital to industrialize and, and have vibrant labor unions. In Latin America, what did elites have to do in order to attract those loans and those private and, and, and private capital investment? They had to they had to prove they had the situation in hand, which meant repress repressing and and putting down all of those social movements that between 44 and 46 had kind of exploded and was democratizing the region. And it created a dynamic where there was no room for middle ground. I mean, you see this over and over again through the 50s and 60s and 70s. Because Latin America has to attract private capital, it has to suppress dissidents. And, you know, of course, the Alliance for Progress is the is the is the kind of centerpiece or, or, you know, it brings this out in relief where the United States promises to help Latin America uh, uh, develop. But then it also arms its it, its security forces and, and emboldens its security forces, you know, basically which become the the backbone of the debt squad states to come in the 1970s, 
And uh, so, so, um, so that those death squads targeted not just activists who were linked to the Soviet Union, but any activists and any reformer. So the absence of a Marshall Plan and absence of public credit and, and public capital um, you know, created, the, created the material conditions for the intense polarization that we saw, uh, that we saw in the 60s and 70s and 80s and, and in many ways continue to this day. A lot of the, the goodwill you mentioned that was generated in Latin America um, through Roosevelt's foreign policy came to a screeching halt in 1954 with the um, coup d'etat in Guatemala that deposed uh, the democratically elected Arbenz. Can you talk about how important that moment was and how how it affected the the Latin American left, you know, not just in Guatemala, but yeah. everywhere else? So by 19, so so Guatemala was one of these countries that saw this 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 very dramatic transition in 1944 from from a country that effectively reinstituted some form of slavery in the 1870s that lasted until 1944 in the form of debt peonage and the form of vagrancy laws, in which Indians were literally scooped up and conscripted off of out of their communities and forced to work on coffee plantations. 1944, there's this incredible democratic revolution. And and uh, and it's it's uh, it, it lasts for ten years. It's right in the middle of the century, forty four to fifty four. The first president was Jose Juan Jose Arevalo. The second president was Jacobo Arbenz. Two reformers. You can think about them. Rep- you can think Arevalo representing an expansion of political democracy, and then Arevalo, Arbenz implementing a land reform that tried to tried to take political uh, democracy and, 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 and get it into places where the state had no control over and that being the plantations and, you know, and, and, and the United Fruit Company lands and the, and the private coffee plantations um, that the Guatemalan oligarchy ran uh, as if they were, you know, feudal lords. And, um, and by this time the cold war was obviously ratcheted up and, uh, and, uh, And uh, the United States, first under Truman, but then really under Arbenz, began to mobilize against Arbenz uh, through the CIA. And the CIA overthrew Jacob Arbenz in 1954 in pretty much one of the most dramatic coups in Latin American history. Undergraduates love to write papers on, uh, on, on this. I mean, there is no, you know, inevitably <laughs> there will be five students who want to write a paper about Guatemala in 1954. Um, and, and they should, because there's a lot of things to talk about. One is uh, the CIA had been involved in France and Italy in 48, uh, influencing elections. And then they and then they had worked with London to, to overthrow Mossadegh in Iran in 1953. Uh, but but. Guatemala 54 was really the first full spectrum coup of the CIA that drew on all aspects of U.S. power, but most importantly, psychological aspects. The, the, you know, the, the, there was, you know, increasing attention to, um, to, to, um, the manipulation of, of public opinion, uh, started in the 1930s and 1940s. It was all interweave woven in with with uh, with with the rise of mass psychology and mass pop psychology and pop sociology 
Um, Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, worked for the United Fruit Company, and he uh, ran a propaganda campaign to discredit the Aubens. Um, and they uh, and this campaign to overthrow Aubens lasted about 18 months, and it finally worked. And, you know, b- leaflet bombs and real bombs were dropped, and creating a sense that there was a crisis. And most importantly, they created this radio show that was modeled on H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, uh, which Austin Wells, of <laughs> course, famously broadcast as a radio show, which supposedly created mass panic. And they tried to do the same thing. And the, po- the point was, the point with this, they, they taped the radio shows in, in Florida and they broadcast them in from Honduras. And they, and the, and the, but the point was to get, get a sense that there was an internal resistance within Guatemala, which there wasn't. There was a handful of anti-communist right. students, but for the most part, Arbenz was overwhelmingly popular. His land reform was was overwhelmingly popular. There was no internal opposition to Arbenz to speak of. The Catholic Church didn't have much of a reach in the countryside, but they would create these shows in which you know, in which you'd be like, you know, some people would be like pretending to be broadcasting from deep in the jungle of the Baten, and then all of a sudden they'd be shot by it. They recreate some battle, and then you know, go silent. You know, it was all taped in a, you know, NPR actually. You could go on This American Life and find it. They have some good, videos, good tapes of it. But the point is, the larger point is that it was meant to transform. You know, Arbenz, Arbenz is, I mean, the thing about Latin America is it's committed to a notion of a kind of Jacobin notion of citizenship. You show up in the plaza, you know, you know, you, your relationship with your government is not mediated through multiple levels of bullshit. You know, there's, you know, your, 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 your politics is, is, is much more of an immediate thing, whether it's through unions or whether it's through peasant organizations. So this is this is about creating a certain kind of phantasma, a certain kind of, you know, these levels of mediation that were meant to transform political citizens into political spectators, you know, at a, at a Wembley map. There's the Auburn's government, there's the opposition going back and forth, you know, as if they were just watching some show. That really didn't happen, right? But here's the thing. The CIA thought it worked. Now, what the reason why Arbenz fell is because when the mercenaries came in from Honduras, the the the, the Guatemalan military thought that if they repelled the the mercenaries, the U.S. would just invade. I mean, that's basically why Arbenz fell, not because of all this elaborate psychological warfare stuff. They just thought that you know, so they told Arbenz to step down. Arbenz thought that maybe they'd be able to maintain some of the advance in the revolution, which of course didn't happen. Guatemala descended into into absolute catastrophe and 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 and, and genocide. Um, Arbenz was exiled, exiled, and you know, a famous picture of him is in his eyes stripped down to his underwear in the in in the airport um, to to Cuba. But why this is important? It's important for a number of reasons. By 1950s, you know. Post-war generation would, could still think the United States was 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 the was the vanguard of social democracy, right? The New Deal was still a model. American capitalism was still a model. I mean, not everybody, but there was still a broad enough spectrum where the United States had not could still be seen as the model. By 1954, and the overthrow of Arbenz, you know, that is no longer the case. The in in the way that that assertion in, in material in actual terms is backed up is Che Guevara was there. Che Guevara was a medically, you know, socially conscious medical doctor who after 
if anybody saw, you know, Motorcycle Diaries, where he traveled, you know, around the South American continent. After that movie's over, he winds up in Guatemala. And he's writing letters home to his aunt about the you know, breathe democracy in here. You know, there's so you know so much going on. And if I was on Benz, I wouldn't let the, I wouldn't let those radio stations and, te- and newspapers do what they're doing. It's clearly it's clear that it's being manipulated by the CIA. So he flees after the overthrow of Benz into the Argentine uh, embassy, and um, and and uh, and and, uh, and then he 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 flees into Mexico, and that's where he meets Fidel Castro, and he joins up with the with the Cuban revolution and, and, you know, until his death, he'd be citing Guatemala as why you needed to clamp down on civil society. You know, we will not be Guatemala. You know, we, we are not going to let this happen. So you could see the direct influence that way, but then you can also see the direct influence on the counter revolution, the CIA, you know, Nick Cullither is an historian who, um, who before he got a, a, a tenure track job, took a job at working in the CIA archives under, during the Clinton administration when there was a little bit of a political opening and the CIA wanted an internal uh, uh, history of its operations in, in Guatemala. And what Nick found was that um, the CIA believed their own hype. They believed that the psychological aspects of the, of the campaign had, 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 you know, had created new types of subjectivity when in fact it was just this more calculation on Bob, the military for why they, why they told Bob Benzie you had to, and, and, and so, and then the CIA then applied that thinking it was successful to Cuba in the Bay of Pigs. And of course the mm. Bay of Pigs was, was this enormous failure and it, and, and, you know, and, and Castro's prestige just radiated outward. So you, you know, and, and so, between 1954, a revolution caused by the United States that succeeded, and 1961, a revolution, you know, that that the, that the uh, well, I'm talking about the Bay of Pigs that failed, uh, you could see this trajectory and radicalization among the left in Latin America in the very, you know, that post-war left that I'm talking about. Mm. And, I mean, speaking of present, pretending to broadcast in different areas, there's some speculation about whether you're on a boat right now. So you could kind of pretend that you were uh, speculating from a sea fight. Pirate um, radio. Right. I mean, yeah. I'm in an yeah. close submarine. No, a friend of mine made a little <laughs> <laughs> um, broadcasting a pirate submarine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so why don't we talk now about um, Allende's government in Chile. Can you talk kind of about the wider context of this? And I've heard you say before, that, you know, in some ways, his government was even more of a threat to the United States than maybe even so Cuba. Can you talk about, you know, why did what Allende represented, why was that such a threat to uh, sure. U.S. interests? Allende was an old-time politician in Cuba. He had, I mean, in Chile, he had ran for president three times prior to winning his fourth time. He had, he he was first elected as a representative in, in, in the House of, in the Assembly, the equivalent of the House of Representatives in the 1930s. On with very limited suffrage, only propertyed white men could vote. He, you know, he, he ran something. He won something like over oh, a thousand votes. He was a member of the Socialist Party. He was, uh, you know, Chile had always had a kind of ecumenical left. There were socialists, there was anarchists, there were communists, but they always tried to tend to work with each other for different reasons. But um, uh, and and you could you could tra- you could trace the history of Allende's rise and understand the tight relationship between political and social democracy where it was where 
with Cuban uh, Chileans didn't see the difference between one or the other in their minds. It was, they were inextricably linked to expand social democracy, say the right to the, the right to education, which would increase literacy would increase the number of voters and, and, and hence the voting pop, the number of people who voted for Allende and the socialist party and the communist party and whatnot. And you could, you could understand that whatever the growing growing in the voting roles uh, through the expansion of social democracy continued throughout the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, leading to Allende's election in 1970s. Allende is a good example of, of the kind of, um, you know, of, of a socialist working through the state to expand social welfare. He was a medical doctor and for a brief time he served as the ministry of minister of health and he put into place one of Chile's Chile's uh, first uh, first national health care, paying particular attention to prenatal health and children's nutrition. So there was a way in which social democracy and social and the, and the state as a provision of social care and the expansion of political democracy went hand in hand. So he was a threat in the sense that he represented that long history. He's an, it was a threat in another way that when he was elected in 1970, at the height of the of, of the Cold War, with the United States bogged down in Vietnam, with Kissinger trying to extricate the United States from Vietnam by 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 negotiating with the Soviet Union spheres of influence under detente, and um, you know the per- first person to make this argument was Cy Hirsch, that you know in his book on Kissinger, he said you know. Allende was a threat, not because Kissinger thought that Allende wouldn't give up power after a six-year term, but because that he would. He would prove that he would prove that Marxism and political democracy were compatible. Um, and and you know, it's easy to discredit and isolate and and quarantine somebody like Castro. You can certainly justify them historically, you know, as I just did when, 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 you know, when you look at Guatemala and, and, and you, and, and, and you recall that Che uh, justified the shutting down of, of political pluralism by, by, by pointing to the, the way the United States manipulated political pluralism to destabilize uh, a Guatemalan society. But, um, but, but, but it was all, would be also fairly easy to say that, you know, Castro's a dictator. He's this. He's that. You can't. You couldn't say that about Allende. And and, um, and the threat also echoed in Europe, where Euro communism was on the rise uh, in Portugal, in 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 Italy, in which um, in which the the post war arrangement in which in which um, in which communist parties would play a minor role in 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 a broadly center left government governmental coalition was starting to give way to the notion that communists might actually lead these coalitions you know as they grew in popularity and that was euro communism and uh and so the strike against Allende in 73 the 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 the, the you know the the coup against Allende CIA led Brazil brokered um, uh, with plenty of domestic support, was as much a strike against that kind of that that general form of Euro communism as it was against Allende. It was also a blow against the new international economic order because Allende uh, represented, in many ways, the the that emerging critique of uh, of world capitalism as as Keynesianism was 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 about on the threshold of entering its decline um 
in the, in the late sixties and the early seventies, uh, third world nations got together and, and came up with an alternative, the new international economic order. And one of them, one of the principles of that order was the right to nationalize, right? The right of countries to have. Now the United States sort of recognized the right of countries to nationalize foreign policy with just compensation going at least back to the Mexican revolution. But one of the things that Allende did and the popular unity government did was that they, they expanded the right of nationalization. They, they, they came up with this idea of something called the doctrine of excess profits, where they would use some mathematical formulation to find out, to, to, to tab, tabulate how much money a country extracted unjustly during that time of operation, a company extracted unjustly from a country during their times of operation. So Allende's government didn't just nationalize Anaconda, Anaconda and, 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 and Kennecott mining companies and international telephone and telegraph. They did the math and then, and then they deducted what they deducted what they said was excess profit from the compensation, which usually resulted in handing a bill to these kind. I think, I think Kennecott, I think the Allende government <laughs> said Kennecott not only lost its holdings but owed Chile another seven hundred million dollars. That was <laughs> for the rate for the Nixon administration and for John Connolly, the Secretary of Treasury. That was a step too far. I mean, Mexico and Pemex was one thing, but this was just going too far, especially on the eve of. Of, of the first world having to move away from Keynesianism into what we generally know as neoliberalism. And so that was one of the threats that, and one of the, one of the reasons why, why I, I think Allende had to go and, and, and he did go. I want to fast forward to today um, and ask about the recent resurgence of sorts of the pink tide, which had been kind of in, in retreat for, for a while you know, with Pedro Castillo in Peru, Arce in Bolivia, and possibly even, um, I mean, AMLO in Mexico, obviously, but obviously possibly even a return of Lula in Brazil. Um, can you talk about the the sort of resilience of the Latin American left in an era where it seems like the left is, is in retreat everywhere else? Yeah, well, the resilience... I mean, to step back and talk on a, on a more meta level, the resilience of Latin American social democracy is impressive. I mean, uh, there's no country in the world in which social democracy and socialism has had deeper or, organic roots. I mean, you think about the repression and, and disappointment and frustration. You know, you know, Albert Hirschman has that great book about, you know, the camp of reaction, you know, basically jeopardy, fertility and, and perversity are the three um, three reasons that conservatives give for why change could never happen. And Latin America suffered them in 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 uh, in in in, you know, in 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 uh, suffered those three things in you know, over and over again. I mean, you know, you know, the, if you need any proof that socialism was impossible, like you need to just look at Latin America, all of the coups, it was a combination of elites and, and the United States would never let it happen. But it keeps coming back, right? I mean, they wiped out a generation of economic nationalists in the 1970s. There are hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, displaced. I mean, the whole social base of what became of what was the socialist movement was destroyed in the 1970s and 1980s, and um, you know, hundreds, you know, millions of people, and and yet, yet it just proves impossible to squash 
the, 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 the social democratic ideal understood in its broadest sense or the democratic socialist ideal. You know, I'm not, I don't mean by using those terms, I don't, I don't mean to enter into any controversy about democracy, so, democratic socialism or social democracy. I'm just generally referring to an ideal in which, in which um, uh, citizen rights entails a degree of individual freedom and some form of social and economic justice and social solidarity. I mean, look at Chile. Like Chile, you know, Patricio Guzman, a great filmmaker, a great documentary, he made this wonderful documentary, The Battle of Chile, that documented the overthrow of Chile, three parts. It's a classic classic text of New Left uh, uh, cinema, documentary cinema. He went back in the early 1990s and he showed it to Chile, and he made a documentary of that show and called it, which called Obstinate Memory. And the, you know, the, the documentary had a, a, that documentary had a thesis that neoliberalism was so triumphant, it had erased the memory of solidarity in the past. It had mm. turned, you know, social democratic citizens into, into neoliberal citizens, you know, and turned them into, you know, autonomous, atomistic, you know, isolates that, that you know, that understood uh, yeah. themselves as consumers and not citizens. They, you know, and when shown images of, 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 of a past of solidarity, they couldn't, they couldn't reckon. And, you know, Patrick Guzman is, is one of the greatest filmmakers in the world, but his thesis was wrong. You know, I mean, if any country, look at Chile, you know, like, you know, it, the constant, like now, now we're, in, we're well into two decades of a social movement that has transformed Chile and, and not just, I mean, can you even imagine a social, a, a, can you imagine a student, student movement in the United States and that, that framed its political struggles by, by invoking fights that happened 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, that could frame it in terms of Pinochet and Keynes and Friedman and Allende and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, and understand and, and carry placards that say things like, you know, neoliberalism, you know, you just, you know, neoliberals command, you obey and, you know, and, and understand that their project is to de-neoliberalize the society. But it's not just that. What also happens in Chile, what's also been happening in Chile, it's, it's expanding. Chile, Chile is a kind of European country that's deeply racist, that has denied that it's been a settler colonial society. And you see that changing. You see the incorporation of indigenous peoples that, you know, that, that you know, maybe have a different uh, uh, history of, of struggle than the one that we would associate with it, the rise of Allende and the overthrow of Allende. And they're incorporated. Oh, indigenous woman is the head of the Constitutional Assembly that's going to rewrite, a, a, you know, Chile's new, new constitution that's going to overturn a constitution that was literally modeled on on, on, on von Hayek's Constitution and Liberty, which was meant to hamstring hamstring the government and 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 you know and 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 uh, and um, and prevent the kind of errors that led to the social democracy of the Allende period. So there is a um, you know I mean things happen. Politicians betray. Uh, you know uh, you know there are there are certainly a social base for less humanistic social, less humanistic, more brutal movements, you know, the drug war, paramilitaries, 
the rise of uh, evangelical style politics in, 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 in Latin America. But at the same time, the endurance of a kind of social democratic ideal in one country after another um, is, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's impressive. And, and to be very specific about Bolivia, when we look back at this current moment, Bolivia, I mean, that coup had the support of Colombia, it had the support of Macri's intelligence organizations. It had massive support from different civil right-wing civil sectors in the United States, if not the Trump administration itself. And the fact that they were over to overturn that coup and 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 uh, in a massive way, in a massive way that repudiated it completely, and that is now holding the people accountable, you know, totally and totally with with due yeah. process and legal rights, but holding them accountable, is is remarkable in, in considering the 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 consolidation of right wing authoritarianism elsewhere. And yes, and it is linked, I think, to a to what's going on in Chile. Elections coming up in Colombia. It's a little. Hard to say what it all means, right? So the last new left, which wasn't that long ago, you know, Chavez's election, Lula's election, then, you know, the Kirchner's in Argentina, then Evo Morales in Bolivia, and then, you know, and others, that, the, the, co- the project there was coherent. Chavez would use oil rents to, 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 kind of, to kind of revitalize the new international economic order and create a petro-solidarity uh, 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 foreign policy. Uh, Brazil would, uh, Lula would ground Brazil, the, the hemisphere's largest economy other than the United States, to create a new center of balance from the United States. Brazil and Chile would work together. They would work with BRIC countries to create alternatives to, you know, to, to, to U.S. power. And we could talk about the many ways that Lula did that in terms of trying to, you know, trying to wean Brazil off the dollar, trying, refusing to sign on to these kind of uh, uh, security initiatives that came out of the war on terror. And uh, and that that project was coherent. It failed and it, and it failed for a lot of reasons. And we can rehearse that history. But I do think we are in this moment of, of, of a return of, of, a, of a new new left. And and um, and we'll see we'll see um, we'll see what happens we'll see what happens with the elections in in Chile uh, later this year where where uh, Daniel uh, Uke I think is the head of the Communist Party is uh, is polling in, in number one and already you're seeing a campaign against him that they did against Corbyn where they're going to try to smear him with anti-Semitism because of mm-hmm. anti-Zionism. Like, what it worked. It worked. It, it got, worked. And, and they've already started. Look at the Harit, the Haritz article. They, they, you know, uh, were progressive Chileans, and we, you know, and 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 um, and uh, I can't remember his last name. Juke, I think, is the uh, Danielle. He, he, come, he come, There's a large community of Palestinian Chilean Palestinians in Chile, that, and and he's one of them, and. Um, I mean, and and so the, you know they're trying to smear him with with anti. They're tr- probably trying to do a Corbyn on, on him because he's because he's popular and he's leading in the polls. So, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. With yeah. That. So real quick, one last question. You've been very generous with your time, but so far, how would you assess Biden? You know, his approach towards Latin America is he kind of just recreating the uh, the workshop? Paul, it's perfect. He's been perfect. Been perfect. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. 
He's uh, yeah. He's been revolution. He's been transformative. He's been revolutionary. Yeah, he's been, he has been, been building. Yeah, yeah it's unbelievable. He's, he's yeah. He's no. I mean, you know, you know. I mean, the United States is such a mess. Part of me doesn't doesn't hold. You know, understands why you don't want to take on Latin America. But I I thought I thought he would reverse Trump's reversal of of the normalization with Cuban with Cuba, but that didn't happen. Uh, it's amazing the hold of, of the Cuban uh, vote on on Florida and and the ongoing power of, of, of uh, you know these marginal voters on 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 you know just w- hoping to win the electoral votes of Florida. It's mind boggling. You know, so he hasn't really been good on Cuba. He's, he hasn't been good on distributing vaccines. He's been horrible on Venezuela. He's continued Trump's policies on Venezuela. Um, he hasn't, and this is, I think, uh, you know. This is an this is an existential policy that has to do with all of the Americas, if not all the world. He hasn't kind of united the countries behind a shared vision of of of, of a response to climate change, especially considering, you know, the way the West is getting battered and the way and the way certain other countries in, in Latin America are getting battered by extreme weather. Um, so, I mean, part of me understands he's up he's up against so much. And much of what he's up against, he himself created. But that's another. But but that's another. But that's an. You know that would be the that would be the story that he was able to you know defeat the monster that he created. But I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I you know I I, I just, sounds like a good. I just movie. think if he signs a few more good progressive executive actions and 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 that and the Republicans don't get the House, like I think we can. I don't know. So yeah. basically, yeah, he's been perfect. Basically, right? he's been perfect. Yeah, he's been perfect. Kamala Harris went to Guatemala and you know told, yeah. told gave him a piece. Yeah, of, I, I don't know what piece of her mind. I mean, I, 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 that was that was mean. I mean, that was just like that was very mean. You know, like and then next thing, I was unbelievable because so I don't know what what's the plan. Is Biden going to run for re-election? And or is, is, is are they setting up? They're certainly not setting up Harris. They seem to be under. No, her. they're they're leaving her out to dry. They're making her go to the border. So, is, and, so what's yeah. the implication that she's not going to seek the nomination or that or that or that? No, Biden, I, I think I Biden think, um, runs again. No one. No, run one no one gives. Yes, of course. No one. No one gives up that seat of like you know. I think um, actually that, Juan Guaido is going to run. I, I yeah, heard Juan Guaido is going to run. I think <laughs> yeah. Bolivia is going to appoint a president. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, That'd be cool. No, I mean, if I if I had one wish, like if a genie granted me one wish, I mean, obviously, and I had to rule out like world peace and you know ending hunger and poverty and all that stuff. I would want to witness a conversation between Kamala Harris and her Marxist father, father yeah. about mm. like any of this shit. You know, like yeah. what is. You know, how is that conversation go down? Like, yeah. what, I, I just, I need to see that. I need to witness it. That's just my, my one. Yeah, dream. yeah. We, or yeah. even better, her Marxist dad and then Buttigieg's Marxist whatever uncle or something. Yeah, and then, uh, and then father and also then Obama's thought. Yeah, them getting together, I mean, developmentalist economist, and right. Yeah. yeah, them getting together in a bar and just uh, and the Millibands, the Millibands can be there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, talk about daddy issues. Jesus Christ. Like, that's just, you know, like, I know you want to rebel against dad, but like becoming vice president and, 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 you know, it's just a little much. Uh, Greg Grandin, thank you so much for joining us. This was absolutely fascinating. I will actually, I think uh, this is going to be like the only 
interview that I'm going to re-listen to. Uh, I don't oh, you can read the no, book. I, never, I, just, <laughs> I can read the book as well. The book's good. Empire's Workshop. Many other books as well. Uh, you know, you're a very prolific author. There's plenty to read. So people uh, viewing at home, check out Greg Grandin's book um, and his several, many books. And, um, and yeah, share this interview with your friends because it is a... Uh, it's like a master class in, in, in U.S.-Latin American relations uh, for the past 200 years. So thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Dan. It was great. Nice conversation. Appreciate it. All right. Thank well, you. it's that time of the show, Paul, where we bring on young producer Kale. Right. Um, and also... Looking extra handsome today, Kale, I got to say. You know? Thank you. Just, uh, just still looking wet. That's That's how I do it. Yeah, that's right. Always looking wet. Um, um, so, <laughs> actually, don't we have an exciting announcement from Juan Guaido, Kale? Is we do a... have breaking news. We have breaking yeah. news. Uh, yeah, Kale, yeah. Can make the graphic. We're going to pretend we're on a, yeah. a boat or a plane or a spaceship. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry yeah, to make you all wait, but it's very exciting. Um, Justin. Yeah, while, while Kale brings up the breaking news, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, there it is. Uh, there it is. There we go. Running. There. Oh, there uh, Juan go. Guaido has declared New himself president, new president of, Haiti. of Haiti. Yep. Congratulations to Juan Guaido. We'll see. We'll see what kind of policies he implements, uh, yeah. you know, whether he stands up to Jimmy Barbecue um, or not. If he uh, he does like a little, uh, maybe he does like a little arepa. To Jimmy's barbecue, we'll see. Right. I don't know. It's uh, it's unclear. All Same right, time. well, chat. You know what time it is? Yeah. Um, so this time. is super chat time. So I will, uh, if you guys send us super chats via YouTube, I will read them aloud because we're live right now, and we're going to try to do our best to answer them. Um, there's a couple that came in. I want to say just before we get to that, uh, really appreciate Greg Grandin coming on. Um, I actually had the privilege of being a student of his a couple years back. Oh, wow. And so I've learned a lot from him, especially on Chile and, and on uh, Latin American revolution. So appreciate Greg for everything he does. Um, You're such a fucking teacher's pet, Brown. Like, uh, yeah, I had my teacher, and like, he was the best, and blah, 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 blah. You know? I mean, I have called no offense. Smart, I know you're a teacher, good but like... Yeah, no you one got, likes a teacher's <laughs> pet, right? I don't know. Well, how do you this deal is with this? How you get pet. the A's? You know, this is how you get. Yeah, it. this is. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know <laughs> shit. I just very kind. Um, <laughs> couple, couple super chats. A uh, few that came in earlier that I'll, I'll run through right now. Lee had said excellent decodes. Hope Oscar has a sense of humor. We also hope that um, he doesn't. He doesn't. Prairie fire. Prairie Fire had said earlier, Nebraska got hammered with thunderstorms last night. It's been a bad week in general across North America with weather. Canadians are dying from humidity and major metro stations flooding. We need a Green New Deal. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's... There's, yeah. uh, I mean, did you see that story out of the Pacific Northwest? It's like 110 degrees out there and um, and like a billion sea creatures like cooked to death yeah. uh, as a result. Like, Jesus Christ, it's just... It's, here's where we're at. Um, because, uh, again, I mean, the the problem with all of this inevitably is just that like, it's, it's a political issue that there's political, uh, it's a political blockade. Like we're not able to actually move like policies that we have ready to go forward. Um, but then to understand the political block, you have to understand the power of the rich, the power of capitalists in relation to the power of labor. Cause that's like, when you Mm -hmm. see, that those blockades being uh, transcended, it's in those moments when working people are able to force politicians 
to do what they want. And so that's the. And I will, I mean, I'll just add, you know, increasingly more and more, you know, union leaders from fossil fuel industries and construction industries, like they, they know the writings on the wall and they, they understand that a change needs to come. And so I think there is a little bit of opportunity. I mean, what they're looking for is actually concrete plans that are reasonable and that can work. Um, and I think that's where the, some of us on the left or, or candidates have to come in where, you know, really working with them to uh, create the, the, those kind of solutions. Because I think more and more people are, are open to them. They just need to see it be a reality. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, well, speaking of uh, political change, uh, there was another super chat that came in earlier uh, on <clears throat> on Vice President Kamala Harris's uh, uh visit to Guatemala. Uh, it's Kamala. You racist. Yeah. Kamala Harris. Vice President Harris told Guatemalans, do not come. <laughs> the mainstream media didn't explain why it's offensive given the U.S.'s role in Central and South America. Is there a way for us to make it at least a little less likely our government will keep doing this? You can share my decode that I did on Guatemala in the wake of Kamala Harris's uh, just absolutely like infuriating comments like it it made me like I, I wanted to like grab something and just break it when i first saw that i was like just the sheer arrogance of it like the the, the condescending tone the, everything about it like when even when she was like you know and the way you treat your afro latinos and your lgbtq problem it's not very good in guatemala it's like yeah we'll ask like and how we treat our our afro population in the united states is not we don't have a great record on that uh you know it's just everything about it was so infuriating and just the obvious point that like our our massive involvement in creating a genocide in that country like it's yeah hundreds of thousands of people yeah. killed hundreds of thousands um but to to the super chats question um i think part of it is um you know it's Part of it, you have to think of it on two ends, I think. You have to think of what capital is doing and, and what kind of the, the transformation of capital is and is going to be um, based on how we understand what it's been in the past. And then uh, what uh, we on, on the left and working people broadly can do to fight back. And I, I think for on the side of capital, I mean, the reason why, I mean, there's, there's multiple reasons why the U.S. has been so involved in Latin America but at least in the last 50, 60 years, a big part of that uh, has been, uh, especially in Central America, has been uh, the you know moving uh, production into that part of the region, part of the world, in order to get cheaper labor. Um, that th these are a lot of the jobs that were um, taken out of initially the you know the Rust Belt and then into the American South and then from there into Latin America or Central America, um, and has continued to move into uh, even. Uh, other parts of the world that have lower, that will pay, you're able to get away with paying even lower wages. So that ends up being a lot of Southeast Asia. Um, so my sense is that, you know, part of this is trying to understand what is, where is capital headed? And, and because capital really only wants, their main priority is maximizing profit to minimize and, and minimizing costs as a means of getting there. Um, and so as of now, it's, it seems like it's the case that it's still, fairly profitable to be, uh, you know, ex using labor in this part of the world. Um, and so part of that has to do with like the way you fight back is that, you know, these countries have to have militant labor movements that can, you know, uh, fight back and fight against their ruling classes and against their bosses locally. Um, what we can do in the U S 
you know, for our sake on the left and, and you know, the other half of this equation, I think it, it does mean um, we have to drain the war machine. And so because we're, it's popular opinion is not going to be the thing that takes down uh, or changes American foreign policy or, or American trade policy. It's it's going to be uh, basically tightening the screws on budgets, I think. Um, and so I sometimes sound like a, a broken record, but I think that just means like you have to fight for social democratic politics here. I think you have to fight for uh, reorganizing budget priorities towards uh, the benefit of working people um, and to, and to, and to raise the costs, both like real costs and political costs, um, which requires political organizing on politicians to say that uh, you cannot pursue these policies without punishment. And on the labor side, I mean, a huge challenge for any labor movement is like how to actually do transnational solidarity to prevent a company from just being, okay, fine, we'll just go here. And some unions try to do it. I mean, it's just incredibly hard to really do it in a concrete way to like prevent some of this stuff. And I think for some, for so much of the labor movement in Latin America, I mean, they're dealing with a level of repression way above what we would normally deal with in the United States labor wise. Um, so it's just a big challenge. Yeah. Um, slightly different note. Uh, Lily uh, says, great show as always. Uh, can we hear a little bit about Nando's upcoming podcast, Transportista? Mm. Apologies if this was covered in the past. It was not. because We don't cover that. No, you can do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's dropping on July 14th, Bastille Day. Um, it's called Transportista. It's being released simultaneously in both English and Spanish. And it tells the story of a guy who was kind of the uh, transportation logistics expert for a lot of the drug cartels in northern Mexico, in Colombia, in Venezuela, and in the Caribbean. Um, he, um, he was basically kind of like, uh, the Tom Cruise character in American Maid, Barry Seal, and, uh, and Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Catch Me If You Can. He was kind of like a master in disguise, master of disguise and identities and things like that. And he spoke to us through a smuggled cell phone in, from a federal prison in North Carolina, um, through WhatsApp voice notes that he was sending us. And then, so we built a podcast, um, around that audio, um, and he basically told us the story of just how he was able to remarkably easily um, ship huge amounts of drugs all over the world and how easy it was to to corrupt, you know, everyone from local politicians to uh, airport officials to like DEA agents and, and airport officials in the United States. I mean, they a lot of the drugs, you know, we think of like drug sh- shipping um you know, by using these kind of clandestine methods, like tunnels under the thing or whatever, but like a lot of it's just flown on airplanes and landed in major U.S. airports. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it just tells the 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 that story of of the relationship between um, drug cartels, politicians, um, how the drug trade and the war on drugs is all just kind of related. Um, and it tells it through this guy who's sitting in a federal prison in North Carolina and wanted to tell the story. So it's going to be that cool. That sounds way better than I was expecting, to be honest. <laughs> I was, I thought I it was about shit, like Kale. transportation workers union or something. So no, but you know, I, for some reason my works. brain went to like train yeah. spotting, but whatever. Um, 
Hmm. All right, uh, another super yeah. chat. Is Jacobin going to change the name to Weekends-ish? Uh, no, you see us on the weekends. Or we, you're you're mm-hmm. Saturday. You see us on Saturday. So, no. But <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> um, Just the incredibly creative name, Jacobin Weekends. Right. Uh, yeah, Are we, we allowed to steal the name Sabado Gigante? Can we, can yeah, we steal that's that? A- we should giant Saturday that we should just do it in, in English. Um, right, <laughs> legendary show. Speaking of Chile, that guy's Chilean, uh, Don Francisco. Uh, yeah. That show's still going. I think he. he oh yes, no, no, okay. he retired. Did... Okay, he may have retired. I don't remember. Sorry, everyone should check that out. He's the longest. Up. He's he's the person. He has like the Guinness Book of World Record for longest. TV show in anywhere in the world. Like I'm, wow. I'm not fucking around. Like, he he did it for like 60 years or something crazy. Um, yeah, everyone check that out. Yeah. Sabado Gigante on YouTube. Uh, okay, yeah. we have one more super chat that I'll jump to um, from Erica, who she says uh, she asks, "New sectors like Uber and Airbnb are not unionized. Should they join another union slightly related to their work or start a new union altogether?" Uh, I'm gonna hand this to Labor Paul to uh, take this one. Labor Paul. Yeah, I mean, generally, I would say join another union related to their sector. Um, I mean, it's it's tough to form an independent union. You don't really have the same resources. That's going to be a really tough fight. Um, so, yeah, and, and I know, I mean, in some areas, I know the Transport Workers Union um, or the other one, the Amalgamated Transit Union, is looking at organizing some Uber workers. Um, it's very difficult and complicated in that sector for various reasons. But I think generally the way to go is joining an existing union um, instead of like starting a whole new independent one in most cases. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Nando, the couple weeks ago covered uh, the recent reforms in the Teamsters that uh, it it might be the case that the Teamsters union is going to have uh, a new reform leadership in the future that is former focused on internal democracy and kind of uh, militant organizing. So, Maybe that's a candidate. Right. Yeah. And, and excuse me, DWP83, Meet the Press may be longer running, but it's hosted by different hosts. Don Francisco mm, hosted Salvador Gigante right. himself. <laughs> for I'm talking about like the single person to host the, the longest show. Like Meet the that's Press right. is, you know, Tim Russert, and now it's like with David Gregory for a while, and now it's that I would love to see Miami. the guy from Salvador yeah. Gigante host Meet the Press. That, that would, would be, be great. That would, he would... <laughs> He, that we maybe start to see some political change in this country. That's right. Um, <laughs> as if uh, you know, Chuck Schumer had to sit in front of Don Francisco and you know face the music. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last last question for you guys. Since we we should get going. Nando's got Nando's got guests or friends or drinks. I got iced coffee. My girlfriend brought me an iced coffee, which is just this uh-huh. is why I love her. Yeah. Shout out to the girlfriend. Uh, well. It's uh, we got Euro, we got Copa this weekend. Who who you got rooting yes. for and who's winning? Uh, hard. I'm like I'm gonna paint my chest in Italy regalia. Like uh, never let the U- the England win anything in in soccer. Uh, I find them incredibly annoying on so many levels. The whole like it's coming home, it's coming home. Yeah. It's like you guys, you guys only win uh, fucking international tournaments when they're hosted in England. Um, you know, whether it was the 1966 World Cup, which was stolen, mm. I said it, or this current Euro Cup, which is basically being held in England. Uh, they've only played one game outside of Wembley. Uh, so even though Italy, you know, 
I was thinking, you know, Spain has three Euro Cups, right? They won 2008, 2012, and 1964. Um, but, and if they had won this one, they would, they would be the number one team with the most Euro Cups. Germany has three also. Spain and Germany have three. Italy now has the chance, I think, to get to two. Um, so I'm fine with that. Um, I just don't want England to win. Never want England to win. I, I co-sign all of that. I'm rooting for Italy. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll just to, to make it fun, I'll go for England. Because <laughs> you're an imperialist pig, Kale. That's right. Well, there, Italy has never done anything bad, well, from what I know. No. You know? There's, a, there's a debate over whether or not capitalism starts in England or Italy, and it's England, so... I gotta, I gotta represent my, uh, my that's favorite true. economics. System. Is that that's that's not a debate? It's not, it's not an active debate. But like, there are people like <laughs> it's not an active debate. <laughs> it is debate one Kale is having. No, but like, <laughs> yeah, Kale has been. Oh, those bastards who think that capitalism was started in England. It's actually started in Italy. Oh, look at you. Oh, you. Wow. Well, okay. All, all I have to contribute is that. Where do you think capitalism was started? Was it in England right. or in Italy? No comment. He mm. was started in England. That's what I say. <laughs> this is the this is the origins of capitalism segment we've been promising for a while. It's <laughs> yeah. Um, all I'll, all I'll contribute is that uh, I'll be rooting for uh, Messi, and uh, I, I assume he's going to blow it because he has to. Um, but mm. I'll be watching uh, with tears in my eyes. Hoping for a, for Argentina to finally win a, a national comp or national uh, tournament, but if people, for the record, people don't know that Kale is Argentine. Yeah, and 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 very nationalistic about it too. So, <laughs> yeah. for the record, yeah. I do know fascism was in Italy. That was a joke. That they didn't do anything bad. <sighs> but I still want them to win it. Yeah. I hope if someone was giving you shit in the chat about that, like, I hope they realize that that was a joke. Like, it, like, are we that literal minded, you know, <laughs> we're, um, where we can't fucking we're big on forgive and do, forget on this uh, channel, you know? Okay. Wow. Yes. Puppy bringing in. Except the for Madonna. We cancel her. We, you know, <laughs> just, usually we're against canceling. From, full circle. Aside from like the decos and Greg Granted, everything else that we've said has been really sarcastic. So. <laughs> just for the record we're against fascism we're against cancel culture uh we're against capitalism uh we're i mean truly we're against italy so just so you understand where we actually stand on these things um yeah all right i think we can end it there um yeah, yeah. Uh, I, hope, I hope neymar right. goes down to whoever was in the chat on neymar uh but uh, have a good weekend. Enjoy the games. Enjoy maybe decent weather. The weather has been horrific and we need a Green New Deal. But all right. See you guys. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, everyone, check out Paul every Wednesday on the Jacobin Show um, with Jen Pan. Uh, it's, I, find myself, I find myself watching often. Not live. I never watch it live because like, mm. I can't do that because I have like a job and shit and, nah. and like a life you know, and stuff like that. So I, I watch it like usually... Uh, later but you guys do a great job so i really appreciate it thank you all right till next weekend everyone bye everyone